Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Josh Matthey is the author of the new book, I Athlete, which is a guide to awakening the inner athlete inside of all of us. Meredith and Josh have the best time discussing all things from goals to ultra races to meditation. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I am your host, Meredith Atwood. I have a great guest for you today. His name is Josh Matthey. Hi, Josh. Hi, Meredith. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to do this. I've heard about you uh, through the grapevine <laughs> through a few of my clients, and I know you do awesome stuff. None of it's And we're both true. passionate about similar. <laughs> None of it's true. <laughs> uh, hopefully, some of it's true. Uh, but I know we share a passion for helping inspire people to to maybe be a little bit more than they are. So I'm excited about this conversation. Awesome. Me too. So you guys, Josh is super cool. He is very passionate about squeezing every last drop from life and helping other people to do the same. So I don't know if I'm great at squeezing every last drop, but I try (laughs) and I like to do that as well. But he's the best-selling and award-winning author of um, two books, um, In the Footsteps of Greatness, and then his latest is called I Athlete, which I'm very excited to talk to him about. He's the owner of 110 Performance and Nutrition, and he lives in Sacramento, California. And he has a master's of science in human nutrition and is a sports nutritionist, coach, and performance enhancement enhancement specialist. So let's talk about all the things. Where do we start? Let's talk about your childhood. What deep things. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. On the last podcast I did, we did start at my childhood, and it surprised me, that question. Like, oh, whoa, okay. Funny. Well, now you're prepared <laughs> for it. But where did you kind of start with your passion for, I guess, fitness and kind of inspiring others? What, what kind of made you Josh? <laughs> It's been a it's been a long road, obviously. I mean, we all get to where we've gotten uh, through trials and tribulations. But the the best answer is that I was a chubby kid, and oh, I was me a, too, a Josh. great. What? <laughs> me too. <laughs> you know what? I think problems. that's true for a lot of us that found our way to fitness. Yeah. So so my reasoning was I, I was a chubby kid. Didn't even really know I was chubby. I was just kind of living my life. Uh, but I was a baseball player. And when I got to high school, I discovered very quickly, not only was I made fun of, but my weight and not taking care of my body was affecting my performance on the baseball field. So uh, that was like a, a dunk in an ice bath. I wanted to be a better athlete, and obviously I did not like being made fun of. So I really committed myself to eating better, to exercising. I started running almost every day. Uh, and the next year, my sophomore year, I was the fastest guy on the team. And I thought, wow, there's really something to this. <laughs> if you, if you commit to something and, uh, have the discipline to do what it takes, there's really something to this. And that was kind of the first twinkling of my passion for, uh, not only are the implications for me really cool here. I love the idea of helping other people do this as well. So uh, then I got my master's degree in nutrition, and I, I started running and doing triathlon, and then eventually I became a personal trainer and coaching. And, but but everything stemmed from realizing it in myself and then getting excited about helping other people uh, be healthier and, and kind of more connected with their body and with life. So when you um, 
realized you were a chubby kid because someone said something. Did you notice before, because I had a similar incident, you know, I feel like I call it the loss of the body image <laughs> innocence. Like yeah. when you finally realize, oh, you know, quote, I'm flawed or someone's making fun of me. Did you realize before the third party said something to you that you had, you know, anything wrong? I mean, I hate to even say wrong, but did you even know that you were chubby? That's a, a great question and a question that I've not received before. And I'm not <laughs> sure welcome. I'm not I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Uh because I don't actually remember a yeah. specific person saying you're fat. It was kind of a gradual realization that I don't look like the quote unquote cool kids. Yeah. Uh that I'm wearing different clothes than the cool kids. Mm-hmm. And what when I talk about this, what comes to mind is my freshman year. I was friend. I won't. I won't call him out and say his name. But I was friends with this guy. I became immediate friends. We were both new to the school. You know, he was tall and uh, on the on the football team, and girls liked him. And he he was obviously going to be really popular. And we became really good friends immediately. And we hung out every day together for the first three weeks. And then something happened. I I think he said something, or maybe it was the way he started to look at me, but. There was a disconnect, and I realized, oh, I'm not as cool as he thought I was. Uh-huh. And I, th- I think he started to make fun of me, and my weight was probably involved in that. I don't remember the details. But on an emotional level, that's what pops up when we're talking about this, yeah. is I realized I don't look the right way to hang out with the cool kids, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to do something about that. Yeah. I kind of went through a similar experience, but instead of doing anything about it, I just went into a sport where it didn't matter. And I just, I went into Olympic style weightlifting. And so, oh, nice. um, instead of, you know, I was like, screw you guys, I don't need to run. I'll just go lift heavy <laughs> things, <laughs> you know? And so for a while that took care of it for me, but then, you know, in my twenties and then after having kids, I kind of came full circle to, yeah. oh, maybe I should try and run and do these things. And so it's funny that I'm even endurance in endurance sports at all, really, at this point. So, um, so I feel what, the same way. Yeah. 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 Well, as as a baseball player, it is funny that I found my way to endurance sport because it's completely different physiologically mm-hmm. and psychologically. But that's what I love about it is it's such a challenge. But you know, as we're having this conversation, I'm I'm thinking about. I've noticed, and you've probably heard said before, most endurance athletes are running away from something. (laughs) And I think that's a simple way of saying that, you know, there's, there's gotta be something inside you that's driving you to run or bike or swim for an hour or five hours or 12 hours or (laughs) whatever it is. And just in my own journey, I think that was definitely true at the beginning. I was, I was running to drown out the noise Mm -hmm. and it has become, you know, after a lot of work, because what I love about this stuff is, you know, the crucible of sport rounds out your edges like a stone. So I went from running from from something to now I mostly, most of the time, just really enjoy it and, and love the journey. Uh And as a coach, it's really fun to kind of help guide people through that process. There is no right place to be in that process, but we're all along that timeline somewhere. And I love when somebody comes to me clearly running from something, helping guide them and work with them on their life. Because that's really, in my mind, what endurance sports are, is 
a way to you know find your toolbox and hone your skills to be a better more complete happier human being so it's it's really fun for me to be a part of that process and help people get to a point where they don't run or bike or swim because they need to Mm-hmm. They do it because they get to and because it's fun and it enriches their life. Do you find it challenging to, I mean, I know I I find it challenging to kind of help athletes to enjoy the process. Because like you said, when, when most <laughs> of them come to you, they're running away from something or they're running so fast toward a goal yeah. that they're too knotted up in, in the end game to enjoy the journey. So what kind of things do you do to help your athletes sort of embrace, you know, the low speed tip overs and the terrible swims and, and the things that are really part of the journey that, that do make you a better athlete? Yes. And that's pretty much, you know, what my, well, I was going to say it's what my, my last book, I Athlete, was about. That's not necessarily true, but th- that's a big piece of it. So I Athlete is about how to unleash your inner athlete and supercharge your life. You know okay. how we all, we all have an athlete inside of us just waiting to be unleashed. And when we explore that and awaken it and step into it, it kind of makes the rest of our life better. So that's what the book is about. But I talk about the question you just asked me uh-huh. a lot from a bunch of different angles. And, and in my mind, it's all about mindset. So, so I've broken the book up into sections. There is a physical piece, like how would you actually train for something? But there's also a spirit piece and there's a mindset piece that I, I'd really dive into because I think it's, it's all about what, what are our expectations and how are we approaching things? Like, uh, for instance, if I know I'm going to have to go run in the rain, I have a run and it's raining and it's cold, the conversation that I'm having with myself about that run is going to completely change and, and shape the way that run goes. Yeah. Well, first of all, do I even do the run? You <laughs> right. know, it, oh, I'm cold. Oh, I want hot chocolate. I, I, I need to stay on the couch. It's <laughs> that, that negative loop that gets going. And if we don't recognize, oh, I'm having a conversation with myself right now and replace that with some positive affirmation, you know what? It could be raining on race day. Right. This would be a great opportunity to practice. Everybody else is sitting on the couch. I'm going to go step into my power and get wet (laughs) and enjoy nature and enjoy being in my body. You know, those, those are two different conversations and it's totally up to us what conversation we have with ourselves. So I think that's the jumping off point for me with my athletes mm-hmm. is getting them to recognize I am always having a conversation with myself, good or bad. I'm always speaking to myself. And the words that I choose are completely up to me and completely shape my reality. Yeah. I mean, so one that thing is, you just said that really struck me was I'm going to go outside and run and enjoy being in my body. That little statement does not even occur to half the people out there enjoy being right. in my body. <laughs> you are absolutely right. And that's why I get such a kick when somebody comes to me because, you know, I have to do an Ironman because whatever. Because, you know, if we really look at it, because my parents, it, it was never enough. You know, the people who come to us as endurance athletes are usually very high achieving people, you know, CEOs, doctors, lawyers. These are people who are driven to do the best they can do. And even when they do their best, it's not enough in their own mind. So helping these people get to a point of, you know what, I can go run for three hours just because it's so fun to be on a trail. That, that is really why I do this because I think that's, that's like life 2.0. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. And for so many of us who have struggled with weight or body image to, to enjoy the body for what it can do. I mean, I, I tell my athletes the same thing. It's like, you have got to go out on a race course or a training day and celebrate the body you're in for what it can do right now. Sure. Maybe it doesn't do what you want it to do at the speed you want it to do it, but it's a pretty incredible machine, no matter what size yes. or age that, you know, and to celebrate that, but it is hard. It's hard. It's so hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really don't want anybody to get the sense that like I've arrived and I have all the answers and I can do this and everybody else should be able to do it. <laughs> that is the furthest thing from the truth. We're all on this crazy journey of life together and yeah. I am just as flawed as everybody else. Yeah. But, you know, I've bumped my head against the wall enough times that I have some tidbits of wisdom to offer people. And when I can help people with those things, it's great. And I learn just as much from my clients as they learn from me. So what are some of the things that you tell yourself that make that kind of pump you up in your head? Like I've been working with <laughs> a peak performance coach and doing some of the same things um, to like replace the, the bad thoughts in your head with good ones. And I have stupid things I say. So what are some of yours? <laughs> I know you've got them. Oh, okay. Well, so the, the biggest thing that I do is I have a morning routine uh-huh. that, and that's evolved, you know, a lot of successful people have morning routines. So that probably doesn't surprise anybody, but, and that's, that's evolved a lot over time. But what I do now is first thing in the morning, I meditate. I use an app called Headspace. Okay. You've probably heard of it. Yeah. There's another app called Calm, but you don't need an app. I just like the accountability and there's different packs. You know, there's, a 10 days on gratitude. There's 20 days on anxiety and it just walks you through this. So I'm I really need like 200 that app. days on anxiety. Do they <laughs> well, you, can, you can repeat the, <laughs> the, the program. So I, I meditate and then I read some positive affirmations that I have previously written down and those evolve. Uh, then I visualize my life as the way I want it to be. And I write about this in both my books, actually. Mm-hmm. I break it down into my marriage and family, my athletic career, and my business. And I see those things separately and kind of take a breath in between, open my eyes, and then, and then dive back in. And emotionally attaching to your affirmations and your visualizations are key. Mm-hmm. I used to just kind of you know, go through a checklist without really feeling it or, or touching it. And now, you know, if, if I'm visualizing... Uh, writing a best-selling book and people being in line waiting for my book. So I'm not just visualizing the book. I'm visualizing being at a book signing and having a bunch of excited people there mm-hmm. and a woman throwing her arms around me and saying, thank you so much for writing this book that has touched my life. You know, I make it very real and I feel how good that feels. Yeah. And the cool thing is, the reason this works so well is because our brains don't understand that there's a difference between what we're visualizing and what's quote unquote real. So you can make any real that you want and your brain will go, Oh, okay. This is, this is the reality. So that, that's why it's so powerful. Yeah. Uh, so I do those things and then I do a little bit of exercise. I have, I do other exercise obviously, but just something to wake up my body. So I do that routine. Oh, and then I'll journal for five or 10 minutes. Okay. I do that routine every morning, and what that does is just really set the stage. It kind of clears the chaff so that I see the world as a, a hopeful, positive place, and it creates 
space. That's the best way. I, I think anybody that meditates a lot understands what I mean by space. So instead of just reacting to life around you, engaging in a, a mindfulness practice creates just a little bit of room so you can see the reaction that you're having and make a choice whether or not you're going to react that way. A great example is my wife and I just went to a the U2 Mumford & Sons concert in San Francisco oh, on Wednesday. It was, it was amazing. Um, but, you know, some things happened. You know, I parked like 10 miles away and my wife was wearing the wrong shoes. We were frustrated with each other. Right. And she was, she was letting me have it. <laughs> and I, I recognized in myself, part of me wanted to be really self-righteous and jump right back in and argue with her. And part of me is like, you know, we're at this amazing concert. I recognize that she's frustrated. I can just let her be frustrated. And I don't have to argue. I can just let her be that way. And then we can get into the concert and have a really good time. And I was able at that moment to notice if I hadn't been doing my mindfulness practice, I wouldn't have had that conversation with myself. I would have just gotten mad and argued with her. So it, it creates space to choose how do I want to be in my life. And do you find that, see, that I went to Tony Robbins, Unleash the Power Within, oh, nice. last year, and he has very similar, um, you know, kind of exercises as far as, like, the gratitude exercise that he does in that yeah, Tony seminar. Yeah, Tony and I do lots of things. Yeah, it, like stepping in to the moment, I think, uh -huh. is what he says, is, is stepping into your great, your gratitude moment. And I find that when I start my day from a place of gratitude, and I'm not, I have a morning ritual that kind of sucks, <laughs> because <laughs> all these things you're saying, like all you, you're saying it, all my favorite people are saying it, you know, to, to meditate, to morning page, to do all these things. And so I'm kind of like piecemealing together my crappy mm -hmm. morning practice. So <laughs> Um, the more you guys that I talk to, I'm like, okay, I know the universe is telling me to meditate. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just refusing to. But I have noticed that when I come at life with gratitude, that it yes. does create a whole new outlook. I mean, so true. Yeah, it's just, it's major. And, and how you choose your words with people. And um, so, so with the meditation, so this whole morning ritual you have, I mean, it sounds like a lot of things, but what is it like 20 minutes tops? It, it, well, you can make it shorter or longer when I'm really feeling it. When I have the time, it's an hour, but okay. you, yeah, you can do 10 or 20 minutes. Just taking the space and making it a priority is the key. And I'm glad you uh, judged yourself a couple times and said that your morning routine sucks and it's terrible because <laughs> The, the reality is just being aware that you should be doing it and that you want to be doing it and doing something is way better than most people. So I would encourage you and everybody else listening to this that feels like they need to be doing more to have some compassion with yourself <laughs> and remind yourself that there is no right way. That is really hard for people. One of my clients really fought this because she wanted to meditate right she wanted to journal yeah. right, and she wanted to organize it perfectly. There is no perfect. There's only your way. And some days you're going to skip it. And some days you're not going to feel it. You're going to do it anyway, and it's not going to really connect with you. And some days it's going to be amazing. Uh -huh. And some days it'll be five minutes, and some days it'll be an hour. But just doing it and moving toward your goals more often than you move away from your goals and moving toward who you want to be more often than you move away from who you want to be, that's the key. So re remembering that you don't need to be perfect, 
You just need to be you is, I think, is really important. So do you want to hear my excuse? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> let's hear your excuse. I love so, excuses. Um, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't meditate in the morning because my alarm goes off. And if I get up, the children will get up and I will not have the opportunity to do it. And I don't want to wake up my husband. So, and I don't want to go in the guest room because I hate that room. <laughs> <laughs> so th- that is what goes in my head with why I don't do this. And it's so stupid. And I don't go downstairs because I don't like to go downstairs until I'm yep. dressed. <laughs> like, so what, I mean, if, if you were coaching me and you just <laughs> heard my lame excuse of why I don't do this, I mean, would you suggest like my alarm goes off and I take my little journal to another room? Like, what do, what do I do? Like, give me some, give me four things (laughs) that I should do just that would help me move forward. Because my, I I recognize that my excuses are stupid, but for some reason I can go train for an Ironman, but I just can't, (laughs) I can't meditate for 10 minutes. Like what is, what am I missing? (laughs) All right. So first of all, I would change your self-talk because okay. you just said, I can't meditate for 10 minutes. Yeah. Wor- words have power. So I would start talking to yourself differently about it. Okay. Just like, I'm going to meditate today. Or okay. I'm excited to meditate this morning. Or I'm in the process of, bec- of forming the habit of meditation. I'm in the process is a really good affirmation intro because your affirmations have to be true to yourself. Your internal BS detector can't go off. So if I say I'm a billionaire, that is not a good affirmation because I'm not a billionaire. My brain is not going to ingest that. But I could say I'm in the process of becoming a billionaire. That could pass my okay. my, my test. So you can use that in, in any affirmation that doesn't really ring true with you. So I would start talking to yourself differently. And I would realistically look at your situation You've already said they're just excuses. <laughs> and, and, and I would realistically, all judgment out of it, just say, how can I craft my day so that I can get these things in? Uh-huh. And give yourself small bites. So maybe an hour is not your goal. And maybe doing all of these affirmation, visualization, journaling, maybe that's not your goal. Maybe just getting in a meditation practice is your, is your first goal. Mm-hmm. I would give yourself measurable goals. One of my clients actually has had the exact same issue as you. Almost exactly. They were both full of in, crap. <laughs> no, in terms of the kids and her mindset and her success in areas, other areas of her life and her realization that they were just excuses, very similar to you. And she was able to get in the practice of doing meditation daily. And now she does all those things by committing to friends, me and somebody else, and checking in every night you know, I did this. So that accountability piece was really big for her. Mm -hmm. And she realistically organized her day to where most of the time she gets up before the kids and she does it. And the days when she's not going to be able to do that, she makes sure she does it at night. But you definitely think that there's more value in this kind of exercise first thing, right? Uh, In a perfect world, yeah. Yeah. But if it means that you don't do it or you do it at night, <laughs> definitely do it at night. And in fact, some Uber meditators, you know, like Tim Ferriss writes about this. I don't know if you've read. I, yes, I love so the Titans, big fan. Yes, big I fan. love that. So I think Tim either does or advocates meditating two or three times a day. 
in the morning and the evening. Because there's a lot of power in meditating in the evening or just spending some quiet time in the evening and kind of evaluating your day and setting your mindset for sleep. Because our, our brains do a ton of work when we're sleeping. You know, you can ask yourself questions that, that your brain will answer overnight. In the mm -hmm. morning, you'll come up with an answer. So having some quiet, mindful time before bed is fantastic. So, you know, in a perfect world, you do both. Okay. But if, if you have to if you have to do it at night after the kids go to bed, take some time for yourself. If that works better than the morning, definitely do that. So with the ultimate excuse, the I don't have time excuse, how do you help your clients kind of prioritize and form and reformulate their thinking to that time is in abundance and that it's all about priorities? Like what, what kind of steps do you take with your, with your clients to help them work out the, the I don't have time scenario? I love this question because I, there's a big section in my in iAthlete about it. And <laughs> I love the name of your podcast as well because I actually <laughs> say in my book, you know, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. Some people run the country with those 24 hours. Some people sit on the couch with those 24 hours. Most right. of us are somewhere in between. But I don't have time is the biggest excuse that I hear. And it is the most ridiculous excuse. People really hang on to this excuse right. because it sounds so good because you can make some really good I don't have time excuses. You know, I need to do my taxes. I have to go out with my wife. Like there's things <laughs> that it's really hard to argue with. Like, well, of course you have to do that. But the reality is that it's not real. We all have the same amount of time and it's all about priorities. Mm -hmm. So you can tell me that it is not a priority for you to exercise and, and we can argue about that. But that could be a true statement. But I don't have time to exercise is not true. You know, right? I run a, a couple businesses and train for ultra marathons and do all these other things. And uh, somehow I managed to get it all in. And right. I know people that make me look lazy. So it is, <laughs> it is not about time. It is about priority and being willing to recognize that fact because most people don't recognize that. So step one is to step back, honestly assess your life and go, you know what? He's right. <laughs> it's about priorities. It's not a priority for me. And then making it a priority. And so, I also think there's some, there's some value in setting, you know, I have this thing that I call the sucky rotation schedule. And I say that you have a list of all the things you need to do in your life and the things that you have to prioritize, but then you can draw a line and like things can fall under that and they can just suck for a little bit. And that can be mm -hmm. like your laundry and your yard and stuff that you can't put your kids and your husband under the suck line, but you can put small things and it's all about not trying to have everything above this priority line. And I think we as, especially as women to try and throw everything on the priority list. And that's when we are able to say, Oh, well, I don't have time because yes. you, you can't prioritize every single thing you can't make everything a priority so that is a sometimes have fantastic to yeah fantastic point i'm glad you brought that up because i totally agree as i'm sitting here in my office with stuff strewn all over the place yeah and it's been like that for a few weeks and it bothers me but it doesn't bother me enough to not get my runs in yeah. or not spend time with my wife so I think you make a fantastic point. I mean, I'm looking at the couch in my office right now. I did a race three and a half weeks ago, and it still has my junk on it from yep. the race. And because it, it's not a priority, but it kind of makes me crazy because it makes me mad that my 
space and house around me is <laughs> not the priority. And, and the, but it's really easy to start to beat yourself up about all that. So yes, um, you know, do you have your clients maybe make a, a list of their top X number of priorities to kind of stay sane? I have done that a couple times for the people who are really challenged with this because self judgment is huge, and that yeah. doesn't solve that doesn't solve anything. And holding it all inside is very difficult. So I often tell people, write stuff down, get it out. So something that I do that I've had some of my clients do is actually write down your top priorities, like overarching priorities. So I already told you mine. It's business, my relationship with my wife and my family, and my athletic career. Mm-hmm. So I know those are my priorities. So as And those kind of jump around within, you know, s- sometimes one is one and sometimes one is two, but I know those are my three most important things and everything else comes after those. So I would do that and write those down. And then secondary to that, I would look at each day the night before. This is something else I'm sure I got from one of the many business books I've read. (laughs) Um, Take a three by five card and look at the next day and write down your top three to five things that need to happen. Uh Uh-huh. And you might do more things than that, but what are the three to five things or one to three things that if you get those things done, your day will be a success and write those down, do those as soon as you can. And then the rest of the day is gravy. Cause if, you know, and, and I am a, a terrible example of this because I do have a list of like 200 things on my phone that need to get done. Mm-hmm. But then I pull the top three of those out and put them on a three by five card. And there's something about checking it off that just feels really good. But if you are trying to do all 200 of those things every day, you are going to be constantly frustrated right? and it's going to be really hard to decide what to do. And it's going to be very hard to do the self care things that are so important. Cause it isn't, isn't it interesting how the meditation and the exercise and the eating, right? All of those things are the things that we need to do to, in order to, make ourselves be happier and more balanced, but the hardest things to do to get there. Yeah. They're the first things to fall off. Right. But the most important things to do. Yeah, exactly. Have you heard of bullet journaling? Bullet journaling. No, I have not. Bullet journaling is something that I started um, probably, it's almost been a year, I guess, but it's a method of journaling. And if you're like highly neurotic, it'll make you nuts, but I have a couple of of (laughs) tips around it. But basically you make like a weekly list, a monthly list, a daily list, and you can prioritize it. Like you were saying, like pick your top things that must get done, but you physically write it. And so there's great satisfaction and you know, crossing it out. And then there's tools for moving things to the next day where you don't feel like you failed, but you're just like <laughs> you're sending just it, it to a next yeah. day. Um, but when I first started doing that journaling, I was doing it in like a bound journal and I found that it was making me crazy because I couldn't tear out any pages. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my gosh, I made a mistake. And so I ended up getting a, a wire bound journal. So when I mess up my day, I just rip that out and pretend like it didn't happen. But that has really helped me. And it's, you can just go to bulletjournal.com and it, it kind of teaches you the methodology, but then you adopt it like your own, you know, your own method. So I don't really follow it exactly, but it's really helped me keep a running, you know, like you said, the 200 that you have on your phone. So I have that running list, but then I can move, you know, the top three or whatever priorities for each day. But I found that to be a really helpful tool. (laughs) I think that's a great idea. And 
I think it really makes sense to know yourself. You know, we're talking about these little tools, and, and I've gotten pushback from people before, like, oh, is that really going to make that big of a difference? Like, what is the difference between having 200 things on your phone and a 3 by 5 card? But okay. the difference in terms of your emotional well-being and lightness of mind is huge. So I, I think there's real power in recognizing how you're built and using small changes, small tweaks to uh, make your life better and to help you be more engaged and to take some weight off. And so that's don't, probably don't, why don't you discount and I like, little things. It's probably why you and I like Tim Ferriss so much. Cause he's like such a, um, you know, here's a little tidbit that might help you, you know, yep. it's like things that he life throws hack. out. Yeah. It's small things make such a big difference. My dad, I'm very lucky. I have a great relationship with my parents and my dad and I write together and I train him. Uh, and he's, lost a bunch of weight over the years. He got his PhD in psychology late in life and gained weight. And then I helped him lose it. And then he was, he was struggling a few months ago and we had a great talk. And I suggested he just text me at the end of every day just to check in. I meditated. I ate well. This is how the day went. And he's been doing that religiously every day and he's doing great. Mm-hmm. And it would be really easy to think, well, what is that going to do? You know, that's just a little, a little text. How is that going to change my paradigm? But it's just enough, just enough accountability to bring mindfulness to the situation. So I, I really encourage people to, to look at yourself and figure out what works and little things have power. Yeah. And you, you made a, a statement somewhere about how important it is to know yourself. And I think so many of us, don't want to know ourselves. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like when we start to admit our strengths or when we start to admit our weaknesses, then we can find our strengths and, and maybe we're always trying to look for something that's not there instead of yes. just seeing what we do have and then maybe where we lack. But, um, you know, I just walked around and lied to myself for decades. Yep. I <laughs> Very well said. And you know what? Wouldn't you agree that that's one of the greatest things about endurance sports is there's nowhere to hide. You have to know yourself. Yeah. It forces you to know yourself. And in, in my own journey, that has been really powerful. I, when I became a triathlete, you know, I was a baseball player and then I started doing triathlon and a surprise, surprise, I wasn't the best triathlete on the planet when I first <laughs> did it. And that was very hard for me. I was used to winning everything. I only did things I was good at. And I took a year off of triathlon because of that. And then some mature voice in my head said, this is kind of dumb, Josh. You know, perhaps there is value in doing this, even though you're not the best. Perhaps there's even more value in doing this because there's other things to explore other than winning a race. And that was kind of the beginning of a, you know, a 15-year journey in endurance sport teaching me about myself and about life. And that's mostly about there is nowhere to hide. You are going to know yourself if you're doing an Ironman or an Olympic distance triathlon or an ultra marathon because you're out there by yourself and it's only you and you, you learn about yourself really fast. And that, that's one of my favorite things about this stuff. And, you know, when I started doing triathlon, I was just such a mess and so, so overweight and out of shape that 
Um, I, I was okay with that. And I was okay with sucking because I obviously did, but I, you know, I'm very type A and wanted to win and I'm <laughs> still not even close to like winning in this whole year. I've been thinking, I don't even want to do this sport. I don't want to do triathlon. I'm never going to be any good at it, but it's just really interesting that we're talking today because I, I was just thinking like, I don't even want to do this if I can't get better at it, but it is the journey. And I think why I leaned so heavily toward Ironman was because I would spend, you know, 16 hours out there on the course (laughs) just with me and myself getting to know myself. And I think that's why I leaned toward it. And when I cut back from doing the longer stuff, I don't think I liked it as much. I think I yeah. need that really long time in my head to kind of come to, get to know yourself. myself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you said two different things. You said <laughs> you might not want to do it since you're not going to win. But then you also said something about getting better. And those are two different things because yeah. most, of you, most people will never win a race. That's just the way it is. But there's still value, obviously, in competing. And even though you're not going to win, you can always get better. And that's something that I love about triathlon in particular. It's swimming and biking and running and transitions. There are so many things to improve upon that even if you're the last finisher, you can take two or five minutes or ten minutes, depending on what the race is, off your time just by figuring out, oh, if I transition a little bit better, if I start taking my wetsuit off as I'm running up, or... You know, if I figure out my food situation on the bike better or whatever it is, maybe you didn't know how to change the tire and now you do. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much to learn. You can always improve. And it, it really doesn't matter what anybody else around you is doing. Endurance sport is a race against yourself. Right. It's hard to remember that, though. It is definitely hard to remember that. That's part of the <laughs> maturity of an athlete. I mean, those are things you almost can't tell somebody. I mean, I have told people those things. And I don't know if they sink in, though, until you've done a few races and realized it on a gut level. Uh, that's just part of the maturation process of, of an endurance athlete. So you've done the really long-distance stuff. I mean, at, at what point is it enough? <laughs> <laughs> How far is oh, too far? Oh, man. You are a great, a great <laughs> interviewer. Good question. So... Obviously, I can only answer for me. Right. And because of this journey where I I mostly do it for fun now, that actually presents a challenge for the really long stuff. Because after about 30 miles for me running, it's not fun anymore. So that means I have, if I'm doing a 100-mile race, 70 miles (laughs) of not fun. Now, I, re- I really believe there's value in making yourself do things that aren't fun. Like, there's, there's a lot that I'm getting out of that, even though it's not fun. But that's 70% not fun. Right. That's 70% not fun. <laughs> so there are people who will just go pound 100 miles, and they go to a different place, and they're like animals, because they're working through something. That is not me. I'm just out there enjoying myself. So that is my work, is... Even though I'm doing this for fun, can I get myself to a place where I can actually stay in the right mental zone or find a different mental zone? Sorry, that's my Weimaraner barking in the that's background. Okay. <laughs> um, Weimaraners are great, but they're a little crazy. So that's my challenge. And when is enough enough? I don't know the answer to that. My goal, so 
I have never actually completed a 100-mile run. I've done Leadville twice. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if people are familiar with Leadville, but it's it was made really famous by the book Born to Run. Right. It's in Leadville, Colorado. Uh, it's 100 miles over this pass called Hope Pass, which is really the hardest part of the race because you're 40 miles in, then you have to go up to 14,000 feet down and then turn around and go back up the pass. And there are very strict time cutoffs because they don't want you to be stuck on the pass in the middle of the night and freeze to death. So you have to do the first 60 miles faster than you would normally if you were going to run a hundred mile race. Mm -hmm. So, um, even though I'm a pretty good runner, this race has got me twice. The first time, uh, three years ago, I I completed 50 miles and missed the 50 mile time cutoff by five minutes. Oh, so that, sorry, you're done. The next year I went back, completed 60 miles. So I, I went over the pass twice and missed that time cut off by like 15 minutes. Oh, and geez. I felt amazing. These time cutoffs for a reason, but I felt incredible. I think I could have finished the race. So I don't have a huge desire to do these long races over and over and over again for the rest of my life. But I do want to finish Leadville once and for all and prove that I can do it. Right. So I'm doing some other things. I'm, I'm climbing Kilimanjaro this year. I'm doing an 80K in Patagonia. But then next year, I'm going back and I'm going to complete Leadville. <laughs> Good. Two, two months before I turn 40. And then I'm going to go back down and do some shorter, faster things. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's really just me. When is enough enough? I think that will be enough. Uh, and then the shorter, faster stuff will be fun. Yeah. But I definitely think there's value in exploring why am I doing this? Because if you're doing it to fix something in yourself, if you're doing it because you have to, you know, if you're doing it because you're running from the specter of your parents' judgment or whatever it is, and these are not things that you'll figure out overnight. Well, don't Maybe. talk about me, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> That's not nice. <laughs> it, well, you know, all kidding aside, quite a few of my clients see a therapist, a psychologist, and that works really well in conjunction with a nutritionist and a, and a coach. Yeah. Um, not for everybody, but I, I think it's interesting how we've kind of evolved from, you know, my parents' generation, there was something wrong with you if you saw a therapist. Right. In my generation, we want to be as efficient and effective as possible. And we will hire a therapist and an acupuncture puncturist and a chiropractor and a naturopath. We'll hire anybody if it's going to make us better at what we do. Mm-hmm. So almost all the successful people I know see a psychologist. Uh, and it can just be a great way to, to take a look at that stuff. Why do I have to keep running even when I've done a 100-mile race? Why, right. why am I never fast enough? You know, Why do I binge and purge when I know that's not good for my body? There's all of these things that we do that aren't really supporting our health or our goals. Uh, and it's just part of being a human. And when you recognize that, you know, maybe this isn't good for me, uh, it might, it might serve you to, to go see somebody and to talk to somebody about it. Yeah. I mean, I noticed when I did my first Ironman, I was a hundred percent convinced that that was it. I was one and done. And then I proceeded to do three more. And then I decided that I hated, long distance racing and I was never doing it again. And then (laughs) this morning, and I had talked to my coach about it. I mean, literally my goal for this year was to do a fast 10 K 
And I texted, I texted my poor coach this morning and said, so I signed up for Ironman Florida. I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> awesome. And he's like, what? But I would have loved to see the look on his face. It was just a line of question marks. And then <laughs> I, I gave him my lame explanation, which is, I really want to do a course that's more suited to my strength, blah, blah, blah. And he just sends me more question marks. Because, you know, I wasted breath on him the uh, like a week ago telling him why all the reasons I was selling my bike. And I was done. And then I started thinking about why I keep wanting to do this. And it's because at mile 90 on the bike of an Ironman, there is nowhere else I would rather not be. Yep. And I literally get off the bike at 112 and I think there's no way that this marathon even makes sense. It's not that I can't com- complete it. I just think, well, why am I here? And then I remember why I'm there. And then I put one foot in front of the other for a really long time. Cause I'm, I'm a completer, not a computer and, and complete. And you do it. <laughs> Is that even a word? But you know, <laughs> and then I'm done and I'm like, I have more power in me than yep. I ever thought I did. And I think you keep going back to that because life can be just so mundane <laughs> and so groundhog day that every so often we need that reminder of the power that's within us. And I think that you can't always get a hold of that doing the things you know you can complete. That very well said. I think it's the most alive you can be. Yeah. Uh, I, I read a book called the rise of Superman. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's about the flow state you know, acts and accessing the flow state and Uh how extreme endurance, extreme athletes. So in this case, he's writing about skateboarders and skydivers and things, but, but all athletes access this state and it's the state, whether you've heard of the flow state or not, we've all experienced it. It's when you're playing basketball and your body just moves fluidly. You feel like an NBA player and it's almost like God is shooting for you Mm -hmm. or when we're making love or when we're writing or when we're listening to music that really touches us. It's this, it's this brainwave state where you just feel amazing. There's a flood of hormones. You just feel completely connected and alive and almost out of body. So we've all experienced this in different ways. So these extreme athletes, because they're on the razor's edge of life and death, they can access a flow state anytime they want to almost immediately. They have to. Mm-hmm. So that's how they're able to do these incredible things that almost seem to defy physics. And when we are doing races, we are also in a flow state. My first book was about running the John Muir Trail. That was 223 miles through the wilderness from Yosemite to the top of Mount Whitney. And that was like a six-day flow state. And it's it can be hard to access the flow state in normal life, like you said. So I think that is exactly why we go back and do these things, because it's letting us jump into the zone and experience something that feels so good and lets us feel alive. So I think if, if that's why you're doing these things, go for it. Yeah. I would just, I would, I would encourage people to, you know, when they're planning out their races and they're looking at the race calendar, like, okay, I want to do this. Why do I want to do this? What, what is my motivator here? And I would, I would really encourage you to choose races because you want to do them or you think there's more to learn or because they excite you or because you're not sure you can do it and you like that challenge. But but try not to do things because you feel like you have to. Because, you know, I need to do this or I'm not enough. Because that's not true. You are enough. Do these things because they'll enrich your life, not because you have to do it or, you, or you're not yeah. 
enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Because, I mean, I think the reason I, I didn't want to sign up for anything this year major was because I was scared that I was chasing trying to prove something. Right, and exactly. I, and I thought, I am not doing this. I don't have anything else to prove. Four Ironmans is enough for someone like me. But then today, when I was thinking about it, I thought, this has nothing to do with anyone else. I really need this for me. There you go. And that was a big aha moment that I need these challenges personally and not to prove it to anyone else. And and it was good. I'm glad I came to that realization because for a while I didn't know why I was doing it. And you probably needed that time to come to that realization because, you know, training for these long races can be a slog. <laughs> yeah. So taking some time away and kind of rekindling the passion and the purpose and realizing I miss this. I get a lot of value out of this. I'm excited about this challenge again. That's that's great. So don't be afraid to take time off. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think it's it's really necessary. So, Josh, we have covered a lot. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, yeah, this has been fun. I've gotten to talk about things that I, I don't always talk about when I'm interviewed. So thank <laughs> you. I had some tricky questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours. And saying we've all got the same 24 hours in our day, um, but it's what we do with those hours that makes the difference between our individual health and happiness and success. So besides your morning ritual, what else do you do on a consistent basis every day that that makes you happiest and, and keeps you on the path toward your goals? Hmm. Or is well, it the morning routine? Is that the, the Well, kind of- I would say the morning routine is definitely – the key component. Mm-hmm. But then aside from that, I just really, well, exercise, obviously, and mobility work the older I get. I'm lucky because I live in a gym. I work in a gym and almost live in a gym. So, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I was seeing the PT who we have a PT at our facility and he was telling somebody else what a good student I am because I do all the homework. And I said, well, it helps that I'm here 12 hours a day. Right. I'm around all of that stuff. So, you know, the self-care stuff is very important. But I also just kind of try to enjoy life. I mean, that, that sounds a little trite, but I always try to have a smile. I always try to treat people with compassion and warmth and connect with them. I think it's so easy to just be on our phones and so involved in our own worlds all day long that not a lot of connection happens. You know, I think of LA or New York. A New York subway is a perfect example. You're surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people and nobody's looking at each other because there's just too much going on. It's like sensory overload. But I, so I try to kind of live the opposite of that. I'm extremely blessed that I spend much of my days working one-on-one with clients that I have great relationships with, that I'm friends with, we trust each other. So I get connection multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. And that really feeds me. And I've organized my life so I get to do that. But during those times, I, I am, I really try to be laser focused and in the moment. You know, when I'm with my one o'clock client today, I'm going to be with her and I'm going to be hearing about her life and I'm going to be looking at her form when we're training. And that hour is about her. I'm not thinking about anything else. And that makes every moment of the day really sticky with life, you know, very, very powerful and connected. Yeah. And, and, and that gives me purpose. Um, so the word purpose is the other thing I would say is, 
I'm very clear what my purpose is and, and I, I live that and walk toward it every day. And that really adds value. It means that I'm not just kind of spinning my wheels. Every day I'm getting up for a reason. And that reason is to help people find and step into the strongest, truest versions of who they are. And to get even more out there, <laughs> I see, I went to a, a silence retreat with my sister two years ago, and we did it this year as well. Just at the beginning of the year is kind of a reset. Uh-huh. And I did an hour-long meditation. And th- this is going to sound kind of out there, but it is what it is. I did an hour-long meditation toward the end. And right at the end of the, that hour-long meditation, I just felt, heard slash felt, I am connected, healing, playful light. I just really felt like that's who I am. That's why uh-huh. I'm here. And I think about that every day, and I try to bring it to the world. And uh, that centers me and keeps me happy. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it totally does. And you kind of do feel like playful light. Was that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, connected, healing, connected playful, healing light. playful light. I like it. I like it. Um, and, and I know how you feel. I find that when I'm in, and, and I struggle with ups and downs um, a lot. It's just kind of who I am. And, and I work really hard to stay in a positive mindset. But I find that the moment I start to get kind of down or just kind of headed, you know, toward a not so great spot, that if I can switch my focus to someone else, and like you said, when you're with your client for an hour, you're with them. And when you can focus on someone else or your greater purpose or how you can help someone else, that is the quickest antidepressant on the planet. Amen. When you can focus on helping other other people. people. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's great. Well, I love what you're doing. You guys, um, his website is Josh Mathie, M-A-T-H-E, and I will put up all his um, the books and and connections in the show notes for you guys. But thank you so much, Josh. I had a great time. Thank you. So did I. This was really fun. This was very fun. I appreciate all the, the introspective questions and the, the way this was just a conversation about life. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely. really good at what you do. I wish you all the best. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. All right. Okay.